This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Welcome to a place where you can find conversations on Islamic reform, counterterrorism, national security, foreign policy, and a number of other areas, including even at times medicine, medical ethics, COVID-19, pandemics, whatever else is on the mind can't tell you what an honor it is to always be with all of you, and thank you for joining me. So many things to talk to you every week about, and this week is no different. I want to drill down this week on a topic that uh, every faith goes through that uh, often uh, can be exaggerated or minimized depending on whose perspective you're using, but the question is, and uh, this is uh, to really look at a piece from the Middle East Forum by its uh, director, Dr. Daniel Pipes, who published in the National Interest a piece saying that atheism among Muslims is spreading like wildfire. And we'll look at the data he talked about. We'll look at some of the intricacies and uh, uh, messages that I think we can learn as Muslims and as folks focused on countering jihad and otherwise. But I do think that my perspective may be unique for you in that we're fighting a war against theocracy. I've always talked to you about the need to defeat political Islam or Islamism, the Islamic parties of the Muslim Brotherhood, Jamaat Islamiyah, and other Islamist movements. And we've always said that, and especially now after Afghanistan, we said that this is a war that cannot be won militarily that they will outstay us, that these are small, simply surgical areas that we can invest billions, if not trillions, into and still see little to show for the work that we've put into there, for the investment, the blood and treasure that we have, as we saw in Afghanistan. And yet a quarter of the world's population that's Muslim is still riddled with radicalism, dictatorship, theofascism, and other mirror images of theological oppression. And so the message, I think, is important to look at. Well, if you think that the fact that so many are leaving Islam is a good thing because political Islam is Islam and there's no difference, that's going to take even longer, right? I mean, I mean, the time scale you're looking at is just unbelievable, number one. Number two, there may be a quicker pathway to sanity, to security, and for those of us who love our faith within the Muslim community, to internal peace against the collectivists who want to control and maintain power, but rather for those of us who believe that Islam is simply a personal path and not 
one for a collective to oppress who we are. I had somebody refer to me again this week on Twitter as a kafir. And fascinating thing is the Islamists, uh, as I'm followed by many different political diverse, politically diverse folks from conservatives to uh, Western secular liberals to anti-Islamists and also Islamists who are trying to troll my work. And this Islamist responded to a simple quote I had, which was that the tired charge of politicizing an issue is an increasingly useless and dismissive one. Defending one's individual rights from usurpation by those in government who seek to exploit every crisis, real or contrived, is hardly politicization. It's our God-given right. And, and you could come to this statement from any side, right? You could come to it from the pro-vaccine side, from the pro-lockdown side, from the uh, um, debate on the other side, whether that we should have not sacrificed other diseases, other diagnoses, all the things we've talked about. You could come to this from any side, but my point is that so much now in the past few months, we've heard, oh, this is being politicized as the Democrats and the left find reasons to want to shut up debate and say, oh, it's not really about real issues. This is about politicization. And then the same thing for the right. We see them saying sometimes that this whole thing is being politicized, etc. And it couldn't be naturally that just the feeling is that this is the medically right thing to do. And uh, obviously, I file, I fall more on the side of religious freedom, on uh, medical freedom, on free speech freedom, and all areas of liberty. And that, yes, public health is important, but the risk-benefit analysis, I think, is being misrepresented as we've turned to a risk-adverse society. So an Islamist responded to my comment and said, in this context, you're ignoring the pandemic. As a supposed Muslim, you would understand that the rights of the ummah usurp your own individual rights. But everyone knows you're just a kafir and a hypocrite anyway. So hypocrite, by the way, is munafik. Those were people at the time of the Prophet that pretended to be Muslim that were actually not Muslim, but spies, traitors that needed to be killed, apostates. And he goes on to say that you're working to keep millions misinformed and poor. And again, this individual sits, sits behind a keyboard and attacks, and I think it's always educational to see what the Islamists say. They believe that the rights of the ummah usurp individual rights. They believe that the ulama, the scholars that sit in their corporate stuffy rooms with beards and robes are the ones that can decide how society runs while people, individual rights and ideas have no no place at the table. And this is the importance of this conversation, which is, now we go back to the topic I wanted to talk to you about today, which Dr. Pipes brought forth a lot of data about, which was atheism among Muslims is spreading like wildfire. What's repelling them from the religion? And does, again, we talk about this all the time, causation and correlation is a correlation of current departure of Muslims from Islam caused by political Islam, caused by the terrorists, which is it, a combination of them, or something else, as the Islamists would say, is being caused by the West, by the Jews, by 
their anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories. Which is it? Well, if you look and read, this is why it's important to read those who are strong enough and brave enough to express why they've left Islam. And as Daniel Pipe says, he says, the ex-Muslims are publicly flaunting their rejection of Islam as never before. A tell-all memoir that tops the country's bestseller lists, one video with 1.5 million views shows a copy of the Quran ripped into pieces. Another video with a woman in a bikini cooking and eating bacon and blasphemous cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. And he goes on to describe sort of the lay of the land of ex-Muslim atheists from Wafa Sultan that got over 30 million views with her Arabic debate on Al Jazeera television in 2003 or four, and then Ayan Hirsi Ali, who now I think has had quite an evolution, uh, but obviously left the religion of Islam because of the trauma she suffered in Somalia, and then goes on to the Netherlands to be very public about her divorce with the religion. And in her autobiography and other books, she talks about the misogyny, the torture, growing up being forced to believe by Islamists and theocrats. Ibn Warak is another one who wrote a book, probably one of the first ones on in this genre, has said that uh, why he is not a Muslim in 1995. And then in 2003, he wrote a book called Leaving Islam, Apostates Speak Out. And it's interesting then to go on and look at some of the other individuals that have now become more well-known. Um, Pipes further notes that, and I think appropriately to non-Muslims, the shift tends to be nearly invisible and therefore is dismissed as marginal. And some have even said in Iran, a country run by theocracy and Khomeinists, that the Rejection of Islam could be up to 70%. We don't know. All we do know is most data does confirm that it has one of the highest departure rates of Islam in the world. So to deny the causation and correlation of theocracy and oppression in the name of Islam to those leaving Islam would be not only foolhardy, but hardly of any intelligence. Ahmed Bakhsemsi as Dr. Pipes notes, Westerners see religiosity as, quote, an unquestionable given, almost an ethnic mandate embedded in their DNA. The Islamist surge peaked nearly a decade ago, but the eminent historian Philip Jenkins confidently states, by no rational standard can Saudi Arabia say be said to be moving in secular directions. It's not. And that's fairly very true. Obviously, they're reforming. Last episode, I talked about some of the books and whether it was simply window dressing or reality. But are they moving in a secular free speech direction? Hell no. And I think the, I think the atheists, those who reject any God, existence of God, and describe themselves as free thinkers, humanists, agnostics, as Dr. Pipes clarifies. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? 
The tip of the iceberg are those who actually decide to leave the faith. The, the rest of the rot underneath this belly, if you will, is the nominal Muslims, those who love God but find no solace in texts and Sharia interpretation that they can identify. So they become in many ways cultural Muslims. They become legalistic rejectors of Islamism, of political Islam, and of Islam's laws as practiced by normative Muslim leaders. But yet, they still have a personal relationship with God, but yet it resonates to their soul, and they haven't left the faith. Or they haven't researched enough. There's educational barriers. There may be simply apathy. That's a huge, huge number of people, and I think often we have talked about in our movement, in the Muslim Reform Movement, in our American Islamic Forum for Democracy, that this is probably our biggest obstacle, right? It's it's not just, uh, if, if anything, those who are publicly leaving Islam are beginning to light a, a flame under the feet, under the pens of those of us who feel an urge to try to use that energy to awaken Muslims to what is happening, to the battle within but is it enough? The silent majority of those who reject political Islam, I, I believe it's a majority, if anything it's a plurality, but is it enough to do the change? There are some scholars writing the difficult dissection of why certain hadith interpretations, certain theological interpretations of various passages, whether it's chapter 5 in the Qur'an uh, and chapter on, Ma- on the Ma'idah, the table, and many of its anti-Semitic interpretations, are those the real ones? What is? Are there ways to reconcile modernity with interpretations of the Qur'an? And when you don't, many will leave because they believe that humanity's inability to articulate a compassionate, liberal Islam is actually a sign of the disease of the Islam itself. Now, obviously, I don't believe that. I love my faith. The the recipe with which I have engaged God in my life, in my practice of medicine and my family and my personal comfort and peace has been through the Qur'an and its interpretation. Now that translation has been the one offered to me by my family, whether it's my mother's father or grandfather who was a Sharia court judge, family court judge, or my father's father who was a politician and businessman in Syria but had an intellectual approach to our faith, or my dad himself who wrote a translation and interpretation of the Qur'an that has had a significant impact on my life. But all of these have allowed me to reconcile with those knowledgeable in the language and maintain the authenticity of what we believe to be God's word and yet bring it into modernity and answer the questions of does God demand that men sever the hands of those who steal? Does God demand that women only get a half a vote in a Sharia court of that of a man, or get a quarter of the inheritance? All these questions I've answered 
have tried to begin to answer on this program before. And I would think that many of those who are leaving Islam that are atheists or that reject the faith or under the belly, the larger group of nominalists, minimalists, ignorant, apathetic, whichever way you want to vote as to, as to what is moving them not to act, they may not have personally left but they're not active in reform and modernity and changing the image or the reality so that the image may change of what people are leaving. And Dr. Pipes points out that many of the reformers end up be calling, being called apostates, which is why I started the program today reading you what just a couple days ago an Islamist referred to me on social media as an apostate, as a traitor and using language that I've discussed publicly before that has been done even at my own mosque. Now many then exploit those stories and say, oh, Jasper is marginalized, he's kicked out of his mosque. This is not exactly true. We engage them, but they ignore us at times, and other times when, we, when they see an opportunity to try to deliver a public fatal blow, they then fail because we go more public. When the imam at my mosque in Sotsdale in 2014 declared that I was a traitor among the people without using my name, trying to sort of talk about me as if in a third person, the doctor in town tried to be able to claim denial when in fact everybody knew he was talking about me. I then transcribed, publicized his sermon, and we countered it and attacked it, and it went a long way to showing the world that here, at least locally, all politics is local and religious politics is no different. But ultimately, the result of that was an accountability in the population that now they have been more apt to engage in our ideas, or at least they know there will be a price if they try to dishonestly dismiss us as anti-Muslim, when in fact the debate is over who's more pro-Muslim. The debate is over what is the best way for Muslims to behave not only with one another but with the world. What is the way that God teaches us? Is it compassionate? Is it that we should not unite as an ummah but rather in our own nation states? That the ummah or state is dead. There is no Islamic state. That now the West has found a technology of secular liberal democracies and their nation states under God, under a constitution but not under one faith with a Bill of Rights and a Universal Declaration of Human Rights as being a preferable technological system from the old centuries and centuries of various types of, whether it's dynasties or military governments, socialist systems, whatever it might be, that ultimately we as Muslims could embrace we as Muslims could embrace Western technological advances in political science. If you look, as Dr. Pipes points out, and he notes, the eminent Egyptian authority on Islam, Nasser Abu Zaid insisted he remain a Muslim, but his opponents were motivated by financial considerations, deemed him an apostate, and succeeded in both annulling his marriage and forcing him to flee from Egypt. 
Worse, the Sudanese government executed the great Islamic thinker Mahmoud Muhammad Taha as an apostate. And these are great thinkers, reformers in history. So, all over the Muslim world, this battle is happening. The atheists represent a metaphorical discussion, artistic, if you will, explanation of the cancer within. It doesn't mean that the entire patient needs to die. It doesn't mean that all need to leave, but rather, perhaps this is a sign you know, when Muslims often target some of the things that former Muslims say about Islam, and they say it's too harsh, and at times I'd agree, because that's not the Islam I know, it's the Islam they heard, or they understood, or they believe exists, but it's not the Islam I know, and many times I can feel the pain in which they hear their faith being dragged through an exaggerated, if you will, an exaggerated meaning such that it is trying to be applied to all Muslims in their description. But I think, boy, you look at how quiet Muslims are in responding to political Islam, and then you realize that maybe they're, maybe the former Muslim laundry list of grievances, which are so true, many, most of them, needs to be paid attention to, needs to be understood and then treated, and honestly treated, not in denial or blaming somebody that it doesn't exist, but actually treating the disease. When women are told they have half a vote in a court, change that. Create new interpretations of Sharia that make that no longer true. But don't ignore the science, as we hear in COVID, right? Don't ignore the science that if you pull a hundred books on Sharia law, 99, if not all 100, will say that women are not equal to the vote of a man in court. If you look at a study, and I talked about this earlier, Dr. Pipes mentions uh, G-A-M-A-A-N, the acronym for an organization that looked at the 2020 survey on Iranian attitudes towards religion. 32% were Shia Muslim, 22% were none, 8.8% atheist, 5.8% agnostic, 7.1% spiritual, 5% Sunni, 2.7% humanist, 3.3% others. So add the humanist, the agnostic, the spiritual, atheist, and none, and you're starting to look at 40 to 50%. Unbelievable. If not more. And this is the issue, is that nobody seems to want to address an impalpable method here in the United States, the need to build institutions that can begin to counter. Because I think, yes, there's, you know, I want to also talk about the competition among religions. Why would, as, as various religions often share so much in common, but you must acknowledge, if you're honest about interfaith work, that there's a competition also. Whether it's 
those that are Christian, that seek to bring many closer to the words of Jesus and God, an understanding of the God of Abraham, or those who are Baha'i, or those who are Mormon, uh, again, Christian, uh, and so many other faiths that seek to compete for believers and seek converts in a free market of ideas. There's nothing I embrace more than free market economically and free market of speech. So yes, I find it extremely, I've just as much as I believe that if people make a product, they want to sell it to me, that's a form of love, and also they want to obviously make a living, or if they have a service that they provide that they'd like to provide it so that they can make a living. Similarly, when it comes to religion, if somebody wants you to join their group, their faith, that's a form of flattery but it's also a form of their worship, of who they are. So it's not offensive. Now, we as Muslims, in my interpretation, we don't do missionary work. We don't, or we're not supposed to proselytize. Now, the Islamists do that. The Islamists are proselytizing, and what they do, they call da'wah, or they, call the, they interpret da'wah as education, that once you become educated, you will become Muslim. Well, that's a little presumptuous, isn't it? It's really proselytization of religion. Now, obviously, um, many faiths uh, don't seek any proselytization. The Jewish community does very little to none of that. Uh, it's by virtue of the practice of their own interpretations of the majority, interpretations of their faith, that they don't do that. But obviously there are still some conversions. But they're obviously very knowledgeable about those who seek to create hate, blood libel, that spew anti-Semitism. And again, this is not competition of faiths that the Islamists spew this stuff. They do it because they want to destroy the competition. They don't want to compete on a fair on a fair table. They want to destroy the competition so that it doesn't exist, and that's what they do with conspiracy theories. That's what they do with their their policy domestically and abroad when it comes to America and the West and Israel and Jews. So as the competitive spirit is harnessed, it needs to be harnessed either preferably... <laughs> And the only way is in a good, nurturing way in which it fuels our souls to want to debate, to want to engage. I've always only wanted to engage, for example, in interfaith dialogue that really looked at the differences. Why we chose, why I choose to be Muslim, which means not only do I choose the message of the Prophet Muhammad and what I believe to be the message of God, but it actively also means that I've rejected other messages. If I'm honest if I am a good researcher and a good scientist of religion. But interfaith dialogue sometimes is all about the whitewashing and about the similarities. There's so many that exist. But if you get down to it, those similarities, do you believe that those similarities are real or contrived? That's a real interesting part of interfaith dialogue, isn't it? Some say it's contrived as they try to destroy the competition and say that 
oh, the other side made up those similarities in order to attract folks into thinking they're not that much different. And thus you get into some of the old descriptions of the history of the Prophet Muhammad and whether he was educated or not. And the Islamists dismissed that by saying he was illiterate and never interacted with non-Muslims and only atheists. And others who are honest would say that he was a trader and a businessman who was quite educated. But there's things that make the scripture authentic beyond the fact that it was pirated or stolen from the Judeo-Christian tradition. But that's a longer debate, isn't it? But that's part of competition, isn't it? Is controlling the narrative. Is it a real debate about narrative or is it about controlling the narrative? And as now we enter this debate about social media, we saw the so-called whistleblower from Facebook. I'm starting to wonder, was that really, you know, this whistleblower story? It's becoming, as I saw in the, I think it was the Federalist or I can't remember where recently, that it's like a Trojan horse. They're using this to say where the the whistleblower correctly is concerned about the impact on kids, the way it exaggerated depression, anxiety, eating disorders, other things. Yes, there is problems, massive problems with the toxicity of social media, but it's going to be used in order to suppress free speech, and then it'll become weapons of government to suppress political movements, to suppress those who think outside the box in our future true leaders of freedom and liberty. And we see the same thing done in the name of Islam as Islamist governments, Wahhabi sympathizers in Saudi Arabia, or the OIC, the larger neo-caliphate, or the Organization of Islamic Cooperation of the countries of Iran, Afghanistan, uh, and every Muslim-majority country from the extreme like Iran and Saudi Arabia to the so-called more moderate, but none are really exactly moderate since they've not really gone through recent reforms. But this is all part of the panoply of what affects what we discuss and how we discuss it. And I can tell you if there's one issue that seems to revolve at the core of what is the solution to the problem of political Islam, it's free speech. And the, and the exposition of Islamists and the exposition of atheists, especially that are exposing the realities behind political Islam and the draconian interpretations of most sharia, does not only reveal the realities of the interpretations of religion that they're trying, that they left, but the work that we need to do, and I think the first step is going to be to defend to the end. And remember, free speech in the West was about defending those who condemned the church, that condemned the establishment, that condemned, that wanted to speak against their control of the lives that then led to millions dead in the Thirty Years' War. And I think Islam is headed in that direction. The numbers of those leaving Islam are increasing. And at some point, there's going to be a tipping point in which the Islamist regimes, just like Assad, he's not technically Islamist, he's a secular military dictator and his Ba'ath party, but 
works hand-in-hand hand with the most extreme, theologically extreme regime, the Iranian regime. So they are interpreting things in a way that's moving, that has already begun the commission of genocide in Syria against Sunnis, against those who have other political ways of interpreting the way government should run. And I think this is, as we come to a close of this podcast today, it is where Muslim world leadership is heading. The message of the fact that so many are increasing in their rejection of Islam should be that time is growing short. If it becomes internal civil strife, civil war, of the pan-secularists, the humanists, which is we decide I would take, not that I agree with many of their interpretations and beliefs about God, but I'd rather live in their societies than in one run by Islamists, even though I consider myself a Muslim. So the increase in the number of atheists should be a sign that we as Muslims need to begin to take their side when it comes to free speech, when it comes to free markets, when it comes to countering the evils of political Islam. We need to take their side and we need to not only, not about Islam per se as a faith, whether it be judged as evil or good, but on the details and begin to erase those details and rewrite them and reform them. Not the Arabic script rewrite, but the interpretations of that script to begin to find a way to have an Islam that joins the secularists in their revolution for universal human rights and says that we as Muslims champion that and stand behind it. Because I have to tell you, I've always said that I do this work because I worry about whether my kids and their kids' kids will feel comfortable being American and be devout Muslims. Be comfortable being French, being Austrian, and being devout Muslims. Let alone be comfortable being Saudi or Syrian and being devout Muslims. What does that mean? We don't even know what it means to be Syrian anymore other than to be ruled by the boots of the Ba'ath regime, or to be Saudi other than to be ruled by that family, the House of Saud. Maybe there's a more humanitarian interpretation in the future, but we have to find an Islam that isn't currently anchored in a theocratic interpretation. And the signs of what's happening show that it's much more, it's not a PR problem, it's a reality problem about the evil of the oppressive interpretations currently taking hold. So it's not, it's easy, as we mentioned earlier, it's easy for many to dismiss those who convert and become atheists from whether it's Salman Rushdie, who was probably one of the most famous ones initially after the Khomeinis targeted him with a fatwa all the way to those that we're seeing all over the world now. There was even supposedly a Muslim that worked for Charlie Hebdo magazine that paid for their free speech 
with their lives. That Muslim obviously was probably a secular Muslim that was doing that in order to treat this problem, to treat this disease that I want to open your eyes to that I think is such an important thing that regardless of what your faith is, regardless of what you think about the theology of Islam, the world that we live in, that if you really want to advocate for the word of Jesus, for example, in Iran, in India, in Pakistan, wherever else Muslim majorities may exist, you would want those societies to believe and adhere to freedom so that you can have the freedom to spread the word of Christ. If those societies are dictatorships, theological bastions of hate, you'll never even be able to get entry. So this is where we can come arm in arm together. The devout Christian, the devout Jew, and Baha'i, and Buddhist, and others, we can come together to say that we want to coexist in societies that based that are based in the freedom of thought and the free market of ideas, that we celebrate differences and diversity so that we can create a bazaar, in a marketing sense, a bazaar of different thoughts and ideas that bring people to our tables so that we can express to them the word that we know. But we will defend each other's right to be free and say what we want in the safe spaces of life that is the equality of every individual and their right to hold those beliefs. How hard is that? It seems so, it seems so easy, but yet so difficult to effectuate in reality. Well, it's always great to talk to all of you. I think this uh, uh, subject is not going anywhere. We'll be trying to continue the work that we do at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. Find our website at aifdemocracy.org. Also, find me on Twitter at Reform This Radio and also at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S E R, and on Facebook at MZ Jasser. God bless, stay strong, and we'll see you soon. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.